0: So we're walking through this theme of sustaining this journey of faith. And it's not to assume everybody is on a journey of faith. We're certainly all on a journey. And if we're going to walk into this journey and combine it with something of faith in God, it's going to be something that we're hoping and we're desiring that it would sustain us. That it would last beyond a period of time or a phase of life, but it would be something that becomes a part of our life. And what I'd like to suggest in our time here together is that what we have to, one of the things that we have to understand in order to sustain our faith is that God has water to quench the thirst of our soul. That he is the one who is able to rehydrate us. And and this is certainly true. But the reality is, is that we live in a world, in a a city, in a society that has so many different options to refresh ourselves, which I'm just going to put this up there on the front end. It means the source of our refreshing it determines the sustainability of our faith. I used to say, where we go to draw water for the more spiritual aspects of who we are, well, it determines. It determines our ability to sustain. I, I was reminded of this when I kind of had a perplexing time in my life. My wife and I have been married for nine years. We've been together for 13 Um, that 13, that four years are important because our story was that she decided to go to San Diego for undergraduate work, and I stayed up here in San Francisco. And we started getting to know each other, and after some time, realized we want to date each other. And I remember when we started doing this long distance, I remember thinking to myself, all right, six months, and she's back, you know. Six months of this, and then she'll move back to San Francisco. She'll understand how special this relationship is, and we'll be good you know, And so in my head, I put this in my mind and I, I quickly realized no, my, my wife is far stronger and, and I didn't have such persuasive skills with her that I wanted and she was committed to the four years. And so I realized we're gonna, if we're going to do this, we're going to do this for four years long distance. And so I remember having to become creative because I realized quickly into our relationship at least that this was one that I was going to try to make a forever one. And so we started coming up with different strategies of um, dating, and so we had movie nights. And this is before FaceTime, and so what we would do is we'd get on the phone at the same time, we'd go to like Safeway and get one of those red box DVDs, we'd pull up our laptop and put the DVD in, and then we'd try to synchronize when we press play. <laughs> and it was always like, is it on three or is it after three, right? <laughs> And so we'd do the countdown and sometimes I would go first and she would hear it in advance. So that kind of upset her. And so we'd have to like restart the process. Other times, you know, she would do it first and, and I wouldn't mind because then, then somehow I amazingly was able to predict where this movie was going. And I had such insight, you know, to the future. And so we would do this together. We had that. We, we, we would do walks together around our, like, neighborhoods, you know. She lived in beautiful San Diego, and, and I lived in San Francisco. I think it's more beautiful. But I remember we would take walks, and we would describe to each other, like, oh, there's this, you know. And, oh, it seems like this tree, this season, this house, this. And we would do this together. We would take walks and describe our walks. That was kind of like our, our ritual, you know. I remember we would um, have times in the airport. The airport became a place of, uh, how do I say it, extreme joy and deep sadness. And those two would happen in the span of like three days. I remember we would um, go on a date somewhere in the city, or if I made my way down there. Southwest was golden back then. They still are, but I remember back then it was affordable for me as a student and I remember uh, we'd go to a date down there or a date up here and whenever we were apart from each other we'd go back to that place get on the phone and be like it's just like it was just like when we were together right and I described this because I thought that when I would experience this this relationship of deep love and the awareness This would be the woman that I would marry. And that I knew she felt the same. I thought that that would satisfy me in such a deep way. I would not experience what I actually ended up experiencing. Because we wanted to be together, no doubt about it. But the distance between us exposed stuff within us. And the physical distance and the physical inability to interact together through those four years, it it revealed something of a deep loneliness that was present. And if you understand what I'm trying to say, it was a paradox to me because she was and is an amazing woman. I was and still am very in love with her. But somehow in the midst of this relationship, I still had something I thought this relationship would remove. And it didn't. And It seemed as it did something of the opposite. It seemed the relationship, rather than fulfilling a need to the deepest core of me, awakened how deep my need truly was. I say that because I've had so many conversations with people who experience the perplexity of thirst. It's perplexing. Because we all have thirst. Some of us, we thirst for intimacy and to be known and to know. Others of us, we thirst for camaraderie and friendship and mutual trust and the ability to be safe with each other. The others of us, we, we, we desire and we, we thirst for a connection. Some of us, it's not actually more relational. It's, it's actually a sense of achievement that we thirst for. And a sense of, of being affirmed and, and in many ways shown for the quality of who we are. I've had conversations where it seems that confidence is elusive no matter how much is achieved or attained or gained. And what it, the, truly the thirst is, how do I find not, not the fake kind I pretend to be, but the real kind that arises within me? Why do I get that? This is so important because many times our thirsts that are real and legitimate that require legitimate ways to meet them, they're actually pointing us to something far deeper than any vocation, any relationship, friendship, hobby, passion, dream, or experience could ever satisfy. And in those places of thirst, how we respond, that well, matters. Because here's the deal. It's not just in other aspects of life. I have to say it and it's not too popular to say it, but in this journey of faith with God, some of us, we may be in a journey of faith with God, and we may still actually experience the same pain we had before we had a faith in God. And it's perplexing. Why? Why is it that this was supposed to satisfy my thirst but I'm still in that place. I, we could still sense. We could have an understanding of who God is and know what he is like in our lives and yet at the same time experience the real coldness of hopelessness and discouragement and fatigue and melancholy. This is an, in that place where we recognize that really when we've tasted of what God has For us in our lives, it may not fully satisfy as much as it may awaken us to how truly thirsty we are. How we respond in the moments of drought and thirst. Some of us, it's so easy to become resentful and bitter, so easy to go towards other areas, sources, satisfaction. And if we're in that place, I have to say we have far more in common with the people of the scriptures than we may realize. Because it is part of the human experience. How do we find water for the true thirst of our soul? There's this man, Elijah. He was a prophet of the Older Testament. He was was a man who was sent by God to speak to a nation, a people of God who were founded and meant to be sustained by him. But they dealt with the same perplexities of life, the same realization that even though God was in their midst, they still had desires and thirsts, and so they would turn away from him. And Elijah was sent to the king of Israel to deliver a message, and in, in what this episode we're going to look at, in very well it gives us texture to what it might look like for us in the droughts of our lives or in the thirsts of our lives to find real sustaining water. If you open up your handout, we'll look at this episode together. And the prophet Elijah is introduced to us kind of just out of nowhere. We're not really given much on his background. All we're told in verse 1 is that now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbet in Gilead, which is the northern part of Israel, said to Ahab, who is the king of Israel, who has chosen to look elsewhere for their thirsts. And he says, as the Lord, he comes to the king and he says to to the king, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. In other words, what Elijah was making is was a statement. It was a statement declaring something. God is instituting a physical drought. And in many ways, what we have to understand is it was not necessarily as much punishment as it was an act of love. Because they were sustaining themselves on other sources of water, and they had forgotten the ultimate source. And this was, this drought, this this inability for the land and the environment to satisfy them was meant to show them, there is one who can. There is one who can. And In the midst of this, he uses this statement that if you read it, it says right there in verse 1, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand. It's it's quite a statement. It's a statement declaring, in other words, what Elijah was saying was, in in so many ways, he was a contrast to King Ahab. And Elijah was saying, listen, I I live my life in such a way where no matter where I am, I am aware God is there. I am aware he's there in the secret place where I think nobody else sees. I know he's there. I'm aware he's there in the public place where I'm aware everybody sees. God is there. That's how I live my life. And I, I um, conduct my, my business, my, my affairs with that in mind. And I wonder what adjustments would we make to our lives? if we were to step into those footprints and we were to live in such a way where we are aware that God is there in our midst, wherever there might be. Because whoever, listen, um, it would elevate certain things. It would call certain things out of us. It would pressure us into certain things. It would motivate us. There was one uh, person who was commenting there's a commentary on this passage, and there's this, there's this section I'd love to read to you because it, it highlights, I think it elevates to the surface what Elijah was saying. He's, it, this, this is what the author was saying. Every man stands before something that is his judge, or every woman before her judge. The child stands before the father, not in a single act, making report of what he has done, uh, been doing on a special day, but in the whole posture of his life, almost as if the father were a mirror, in whom he saw himself reflected, and from whose reflection of himself he got at once a judgment of who he was and suggestions of who he ought to be. The poet stands before nature. She is his judge. A certain felt harmony or discord between his nature and her ideal is the test and directing power of his life. What he was saying was, we all stand before something as our source. All of us do. We don't actually have to have religion to recognize. All of us stand before something that we hold ourselves before, and in it, we see our reflection of who we are and who we ought to be. And whoever that is, whatever that is, well, it has the power to direct us and to either disappoint us or sustain us. And Elijah says, I stand before him and he is the one who is saying there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And in verse 2, we're told that the word of the Lord came to him. And, he, and God told him, and he says, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook of Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. I want you to go from Samaria and I want you to go over to the brook. And I asked him to put this map up just so we understand kind of the landscape. See, there's this the northern she- section of Israel. You see Galilee in the north and the Dead Sea in the south. And you see in the middle Samaria, this is where he would go to speak to King Ahab, and after pronouncing this drought, which, by the way, had severe implications for the land. A drought meant no crop. A drought meant no no ability to sustain livestock. A a drought meant desperation as the drought intensified. It would inevitably mean anger by the people and anger from the people in power. And what would happen was the person who would be seen as responsible for this drought, for for the drying up of all water, would be Elijah. And so God tells Elijah, You need to hide. You need to go. You need to go to a secluded place off of the river of the Jordan, into the brook. In the middle of a dry land and drought, I want you to go to a small, modest brook. And I want you to hide yourself there. I want you to go where you think perhaps it's not sustainable. It's not going to last. It's not going to uh, provide for your needs, but that is where you will go. I want you to leave the public stage, and I want you to go into privacy and seclusion and solitude. And I want you to dwell there. In fact, he says, I want you to not just go there. I want you to, you shall drink from the brook. That will be your source of water. And I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. I have special messengers to deliver uh, to-go food or deliveries. But you don't get to order it. It's a surprise every time. (laughs) Whatever they find, you will get. This is the idea. And so he went and and, and he did according to the word of the Lord, right? And he went and he lived by the brook. He lived. He inhabited that place. He settled there of the brook of Kareth that is east of the Jordan. You get the sense? If, here is where Elijah goes far beyond what any of us, I think, are maybe are naturally capable of. Because Elijah listens. And he doesn't try. You know what he doesn't do? He doesn't second guess. He doesn't try to figure out his own way. He doesn't seek out a different way. He goes to the brook. And if you could imagine... A man of uh, passion like him, which is what he was. A man used to a certain place of prominence and access to power, which is what he was. Had to go to a place where hopefully he would be forgotten. And hopefully no one would find him. And hopefully he would be hidden. And He would go to this brook, knowing what he had just said. There's a drought in the land, which means this brook has a, it's an hourglass. It's only a matter of time before it dries up. And every morning he would wake and wonder, are the ravens coming? And the ravens, by the way, were in his culture, in his frame of mind, they were an unclean bird, that is, He wasn't supposed to connect with them. So he's sitting by the brook, seeing it dry up. And he's drinking it. And it's modest. And you see the low, you you could sense it, the lowering of the water. But this is what God told me to do. And every morning and every evening, I wonder what, will the raven come? Will it come? You know what you see there? A picture of utter dependency. Stripped, stripped of the ability to go fend for himself. He was asked to utterly depend on forces outside of his control for his sustenance. He doesn't get desperate. He doesn't panic. He doesn't move in haste. He doesn't get mad. He waits. It's quite a picture. In seclusion, alone, waiting. And as he does this, we're told in verse 6 that the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. The drought of the land was in full force. And there, Elijah experienced what seemed like an inhabitable place. And yet, in that inhabitable place, God seemed to provide. And God's provision, listen, it never, how, how do I say this? This brook and the ravens, his utter dependability on God's provision, you know what it never removed from the equation? His need to trust that he would be provided for. He didn't get a rushing river. He didn't get a feast and a full refrigerator. He got portions, rations. And as he's doing this, you get the sense that even though there was a drought, and maybe it was a month later that the brook dried up, some suggest it may have even been longer, up to six months. But it seems that Elijah discovered some keys to sustaining his faith. It seems that he got in touch with something. He discovered, listen, that though the resource of water ran dry, the one who created it was still present. And even though that he was staring at limited resource, he never lost sight of the one with unlimited supply. That is who he stood before. You know who he did not stand before? The river, the brook. He was not in desperate dependence on the brook. He was in desperate dependence on the one who sent him there. And that seems to have made all the difference. Because what I want to suggest to you is that this picture, this episode Elijah was uh, living, it actually highlights something that in his day was more like an analogy, metaphorical, but in our day it was actually, it could be taken Quite literally, in the sense that it pointed to very real resource, water, pointed to a very real thirst of one's soul. And God seems to be the one who provided for that thirst. And today, today, in our day, to years, hundreds of years after Elijah had that experience, a man named Jesus stepped onto the scene. And he stepped into a conversation with a woman named, uh, we don't know her name. But she was named the woman at the well. Actually, in Samaria. In Samaria the very region Elijah was in. And he goes to this woman at the well who went there at high noon because she was thirsty, but she, her thirst, led her into the arms of other men. And her thirst led her into relationships that compromised her reputation and caused her to be an outcast. And Jesus steps into this conversation at the well at high noon when no one else was there in the secluded, forgotten place. And Jesus doesn't, you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't condemn her for her thirst. He doesn't shame her for her thirst. He doesn't, he doesn't in any way ridicule her for her need. No, he steps into the conversation, and in one of the greatest analogies ever created, he looks at the well, and he looks at her, and he says, you can drink from this well, but you will be thirsty again. But I want to give you something. And you can see it in John 4, 14 that whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. In fact, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. If you could see it, see this well? See how it provides water? You have to come back to it every day, every day, every day. What I want to do to you, what I want to give you, is I want to produce within you a fountain. See, it, it will quench your thirst, And when you're thirsty again, it will bubble from the inside out. And it will go with you wherever you go. And you have to understand this this eternal source of life, what is it? What is it? What is it? Well, in the same way that Elijah received substance through unclean messengers, you have to understand Jesus stepped into a very unclean place when he put himself on the cross and died for all things that are unclean. And in a very brutal and sacrificial way, that becomes the the means by which new life is given. And all of a sudden, because he stepped into the place of the forgotten, the secluded, the marginalized, the thirsty and hungry, the punished and condemned, when he put himself in that place, He made himself accessible to quench the thirst of the human soul. And the woman says, if that's what you have, I want that water. Jesus gives us water for the thirst of our soul. And the reason we we um, struggle sometimes is because we think we can take the water and not have to reconnect with Jesus. Jesus is the water. And the relationship we have with him is what satisfies. And his love and his grace and his ability to give us acceptance, perhaps when no no one else may, His abilities, this is is so important for us to understand, our relationships, our activities, our achievements, our means, our successes, everything that we might be chasing after, it has the ability to satisfy this much. But the need is far deeper. But when we welcome Jesus into our lives and we cultivate a way of life with him, he is able to Help us drink deeply from him so that our needs are met. And then what little we might have relationally, what little we might have in terms of our success or what we are striving after, no longer looks like little. It now looks like a beautiful gift. It reorients everything. When we invite Jesus, and you know, all we have to do is say, Jesus, I want that water. I thirst for you. I thirst for you. That phrase changes everything. And if that's the case, what well, we have to understand is that Elijah not just represents the reality that God alone can meet the thirst of our soul, that God's water, you know what it does? It has a cleansing effect on us. It has the ability to wash away motives that hinder our journey. Because seclusion, you know what it does? You know what seclusion, being forgotten, being left alone, or being somehow obscure in the obscure place, you know what it does to us? It reveals us. That's what it does. It reveals what's going on inside. And a lot of times, we, if we don't, we don't slow down enough, it's the motives that we are walking with that are far too big and too heavy for us to be able to move forward in the journey we're supposed to go after. And so in this place of seclusion, in this place of being forgotten, in this place of sitting there alone, you know what it was being stripped of Elijah? You know what you don't need? You don't need prominence, Elijah. You need me. You know what you don't need? You don't, your life. Your soul is able to survive here. So let me let me strip you of all the things you think you need. Because where Elijah was going, he needed to be able to run faster, longer, lighter. And there's something of his internal work, in my opinion, that needed to be happening within him. And that's many times in our lives, the drought is not punishment, it's refinement. And the gap and the need is not because somehow the forces are against us. As much as it is somehow something is working. Because this is the reality. This is the reality. God uses all things, all things for the betterment of those he loves and who love him. Which means that there is something of a cleansing effect. Motives. Desires. That may be more myopic, more self-centered, start to get stripped away. And what starts to be put in its place are motives that start to understand the world is much larger than this one life. And perhaps my life is not supposed to be about attaining everything that I desire and everything that I want. Maybe it's not supposed to be about me but about what I'm supposed to strive after. Maybe it's not supposed to be about my personal greatness as much as it is be about what God says is greatest. Maybe it's not supposed to be about what I desire as much as what's, what only I can accomplish because of the way I was designed. Maybe, maybe, maybe with him in the center of this, in a secluded place, recognizing I'm utterly dependent on you, maybe there is actually the best place to be for where we need to go as we strip things off. My life will no longer be about uh, the brook or the food the raven brings. My life will be about the one who created both. And my world will expand. And all of a sudden, we start to live for something larger than us. Something that requires more than us. Something that um, will call the best out of us and refine the things we'd rather no one else see. A secluded place. It has the ability, you know what his water does? And you know what it doesn't do? It doesn't shame us. It doesn't condemn us. You know what it does? It washes us. Cleanse us. Wash us of bitterness. Wash us of unforgiveness. Wash away the shame. Wash away the rejection. Wash away the sense of insecurity. Satisfy. That's what he does. It's what he did to the woman at the well. It's what he did with Elijah. It's what he longs to do for us because the end of the day what we have to understand is his water can sustain us listen in the drought and in the deluge he can sustain us in the drought in the place where there is not much he can sustain us Jesus can sustain us and the beautiful thing about that is in the drought if we can sustain our faith our journey our life with him where there is not much You know what doesn't happen? This is what Paul said. Paul said, I have learned, and learned means over time. I have learned the gift of contentment. That because Jesus is with me, he is my ultimate source of sustainability, that I can um, experience periods in my life where I don't have much, but I'm okay. And I could experience periods of abundance, and it won't sweep me away it keeps he keeps me he keeps me centered he keeps me content because he had he discovered i'm dependent on the one who provides i'm not dependent on the provision i'm dependent on the one who has given to me not the gift that's who i'm dependent on and when we discover how to be sustained by his Living water, his river for our lives. You know what happens? In the drought, we get to be able to be satisfied. And in the periods of abundance and distractions and experiences and hobbies and affluence, you know what doesn't happen? We don't get swept away. We don't get hasty in the period of desperation and drought. And we don't get swept away into harm and injury in the period of abundance. He keeps us. He sustains us as we drink water for our soul. And we get to then experience the beauty of the environment because a soul that is dependent on him for water can inhabit any environment it's exposed to. I definitely don't get it perfect, don't get it right. But I'll tell you, appreciating the woman in my life it, it is so much easier when I understand her role in my life and the role that like Jesus has in my life. Uh, vocations are so much, listen, if we don't depend on them to satisfy the deepest longings of our soul, to, to, to somehow fulfill us, you know what happens when, when they, we get disappointed? We're okay not our source. And we step into that environment. Okay. It's strong. And when the the good times come, we get to enjoy them. And when they go away, we get to be sustained through them. This, this is the impact of drinking water that God longs to provide us. May that be the case. May we be the ones who discover the depth of our thirst. And in our thirst, may we turn to the one who says, I can, I can give you water that will satisfy you so deeply. You will be able to enjoy every other aspect of your life. You will be sustained. Oh, may that be us. God, thank you. I thank you that you are the one who is able to meet us in our need, and you are the one who lovingly makes us aware of our need. You're the one who never shames us for our need, never, never ridicules us, never speaks to us as less than, but you step into it. I pray, God, that, uh, that you would help us receive your satisfying, your cleansing, your sustaining water. In Jesus' name, Amen.